crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Travis Bob Pro Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers, we know it. Ask me about my win hat. So there's a reason why Navy and Notre Dame have played a college football game each year since 1939. And what you may not know is that they will play a game each year for the rest of time. Now, prior to 1939 or around that time, believe it or not, Notre Dame, the prestigious college football program that it's known as today, was not financially independent and needed help. So Navy would loan them money for a certain amount of time and actually they accrued or Notre Dame accrued a pretty big debt that it owed Navy and started to pay it back over the course of time you know the Arab Parsegan era and obviously Notre Dame becoming the foundation and a franchise and and really the the epitome of college football um, Notre Dame starts to make some money they're able to pay Navy back Navy stops they say listen Instead of just giving us money back every year, which will take you a while to pay all this money back, we're just going to have an agreement. We'll just have a game each year, Navy-Notre Dame, for the rest of the time. You probably didn't know that. So the things I talk about on this show, outside of little points that I want to bring up, um, are things that I'm very passionate about. And one of the things that I am the most passionate about is when it comes to the blame or what it takes for a team sport, any team in a sport, to have a reputation of being a winner or a loser. And I really think those two words are so synonymous with the exact reason that teams, they either win games or lose games. And we talk about goals as they're scored in hockey, touchdowns and points as they're scored in football, points in basketball, runs as they're scored in baseball. And maybe having one more than your opposition is the win, the difference between a winner and a loser. And I always seem to be dumbing this down, but I really think it should be dumbed down because there's so much emphasis on other stuff that has nothing to do with the basic element of what's causing your opinion or your feelings or why you're happy or why you're mad or why you're angry or why you're sad. It's all about that other team scoring one more run than your team. That other team scoring one more point than your favorite football team. One more point in basketball, one more point in goals. It's the difference between wins and losses. But as sports fans, the biggest problem that we have is we try to think we're so much smarter than that. Where we think that it has to be so much more of a prestigious reason why a win is a win and a loss is a loss. But the difference between a good coach and a bad coach is a win and a loss. The difference between a good player or a winning player and a bad player or a losing player is a win or a loss. When you win, there's no bad things. You don't think of anything bad. You don't think of any skeletons. You don't think of any warts. There's no issue about clubhouse or sideline chemistry or bench chemistry 
Are the players getting along? Nobody gives a shit when you're winning. Look at the, the late 1970s Yankees when they won the back-to-back -back World Series in 1977 and 1978. There was so much. It, it was kind of like a, a like like an entertainment section. All the things that were going on then in the, in the Yankees clubhouse with Thurman Munson and Billy Martin and Reggie Jackson and all those guys. Listen, they had a bunch of different personalities. They had a hard time getting along. It was would have been a problem if the Yankees were not winning. And that's kind of the problem that we have as sports fans is we we always want to explain it. We always want to try to think that there's some more of an intellectual discussion that could be had about why the difference between a good team and a bad team. A good team and a bad team, good teams win, bad teams loses, lose. Good coaches win, bad coaches lose. And sometimes it could be both. You could be a really good coach for a while because you happen to be coaching a team that's winning. And then you, you have a, a shitty group of players and the greatest coach in the history of the world isn't going to turn them into winners. But another thing that kind of sets us back is we watch the, the miracle movies. We watch, you know, whether it's, whether it's Hoosiers, whether it's Major League, whatever other type, you know, the Mighty Ducks, whatever movies that we, we watch that look at teams that probably didn't deserve to be at the highest stage and then they go out there and win and we think that that could happen in real life and very seldom does that happen in fact the times that it happens are kind of times when there's a transformation between losing and winning all of a sudden you know and i'll use a random baseball team cincinnati reds got a good chance of making the playoffs this year they were one of the worst teams in baseball last year but They've had an influx of talent that has changed the perception. They're winning more games than they're losing. You look at their manager, David Bell, has one of the lowest winning percentages as a manager you know, that we've seen in the last 20 years or so. Does that make him a bad manager? Did all of a sudden he wake up this year and become a really good baseball manager? No, his teams are winning while the other teams that he was managing before are losing. The Baltimore Orioles, 35 games or more over 500 have been a laughing, laughing stock of baseball for the last five or so years. Haven't even been trying on the field. You can talk about their manager being such a bad manager coming into this year. All of a sudden, you know, they're 35 games over 500. Is he all of a sudden the best manager in baseball? A.J. Hinch is, is always my one of my funniest examples. You know, actually, A.J. Hinch, Joe Torre, and Casey Stengel are probably my biggest examples about you know, you're only as good as the ability that your team has to win. And like I said, we try to make it like it's so psychological that we could think of all these well thought out and uh, hypothesized reasons why things happen the way they do. One team wins, one team loses. The team that wins looks good. The team that loses looks bad. And then we extrapolate that over a whole season and a good team happens to win and a bad team happens to lose. We don't want to make it like it's so simple. And that's kind of one of the things that frustrated me. And I'm going to continue to, to pounce on this because there's so little discussion in a world of sports about the basics of you know the difference between a good team and a bad team. Wins, losses. We, we want to make it about the players. We want to make it about the culture, the chemistry. We want to make it about the leadership. Oh, if you had a better coach, the players would play better. Nah. How about a little more accountability to the players? The players didn't get the job done, right? In the end, 
they're the ones that have the most control and the most basically tangible ability to impact a win or a loss. Once again, we, we don't want to talk about that. We want to make it like it's so many other reasons. And maybe, listen, the, the, the world of sports talk has grown to where networks focus 100% of their content on sports. And you have shows that back up shows that back up shows. Uh, a, a group of a bunch of people that just don't want to, they don't, they don't want to admit that it's that simple. They want to make like there's so much bigger of a reason, a bigger, you know, element that's causing a team to lose. Or there's so much of an you know extraneous force coming from the outside that's making a team win. It's winning because of the coach. It's winning because of the players. No, it's winning because of the win. The fact that you won and the other team lost is the only difference in you being a good team and a bad team. And like I said, I keep hammering this point home, but I don't think there's a lot of people on the other side that are even giving it a lot of thought. And that's kind of the thing that frustrates me the most. Now, I wanted to throw out the Derek Bell story. Um, you know, Operation Shutdown of 2002. And it's not to harp on the player, but it's, it's, it's a mentality that I think is growing uh, prevalent throughout the world of sports today. And there's a thought behind it when it comes to certain players and their own belief and their own talent. And I think there's a line between a belief in one's own talent and maybe just being a little too full of yourself. For those that don't know the Derek Bell story, Derek Bell uh, in 2000 was playing for the New York Mets. He ended up getting hurt in, I think it was the Division Series. The Mets ended up making it to the World Series that year. Derek Bell ends up not playing the rest of the season. Signs a two-year contract with the Pittsburgh Pirates. His first year, he's battling some injuries. He had a hard time coming back from the injuries that he, he suffered in, a, in a October of, of 2000. And he has a dismal season, an, an awful season. A below-replacement level season is not in... You know, a regular player with the Pirates by the time the season ends, but he's on. He comes into the second year of a two-year contract, and hey, he, he's getting a chance in spring training. Hey, if he plays well, he's got a good chance to earn that veteran spot as a regular player that he has been for the better part of the previous decade. Remember, Derek Bell at this point, World Series champion with the Toronto Blue Jays in 1993. Here's a guy that is known as a regular baseball player. He plays every day. He did that with uh, Toronto, with San Diego, with Houston, and then the Mets. He signs with the Pir Pirates with the expectation of being able to do the same thing. Well, he had a dismal season. And you say, hey, you're only as good as the last season you played. So is there a chip on Derek Bell's shoulder to go out there and try to prove himself? He doesn't feel like he has to. He goes into Operation Shutdown. Says, "I'm not even gonna. I, I'm not here to compete for a spot. I've played a long enough time in a major, you know, in baseball. And if Derek Bell was right with this assessment, there's 29 other Major League Baseball teams that'll be knocking at the door for Derek Bell services, right? If he's a good player, if he should be a regular Major League player and is not getting a chance, you know, maybe it's a Pittsburgh team that's looking to rebuild. They want to look at some players." Maybe they want to see how much more Derek Bell's got left. He doesn't want to. He doesn't think he has to show it anymore. The twenty-nine other Major League Baseball teams didn't sign him when they could have had him for the league minimum. So you're looking at Derek Bell, who became a malcontent when he was with Houston, to a point 
where any Mike Hampton trade, which Mike Hampton was a very tradable player, was uh, lucrative to the Astros with the ability to be able to get some good quality players back, had to be tied to taking Derek Bell off the Astros' hands. So you had that. You had the situation with the Pittsburgh Pirates where he kind of makes himself look bad. And then he got the fact that nobody in Major League Baseball wants him on his team. He never plays another Major League Baseball game. And I wonder if he still feels the same way all these different years later. And the reason why I bring this up is I look at my buddy James Harden and the Philadelphia 76ers. And yes, you know the media is out there trying to make a story, trying to dig everything possible out. So you had some, uh, some people investigating saying, hey, uh, James Harden wasn't happy about not making the All-Star team. He was pouting. Different things were happening in the, in the Philadelphia locker room. Issues with Doc Rivers. He's the reason Doc Rivers got fired. Yada, yada, yada. I believe there's some piling on after a certain point where you're trying to make somebody look bad. So I'm willing to accept that. But James Harden at some point has to look at himself in the mirror and certainly a well more accomplished player than Derek Bell, a former Major League Baseball outfielder. But you know, he's got the situation in Houston where he demands a trade. He refuses to play up until they make a deal with the Brooklyn Nets. The issues that happen in Brooklyn, mostly Kyrie Irving-centric, force him to want out of Brooklyn and go to Philadelphia. So there he is with his third team in basically four years doing the same thing, saying, I don't want to play for Philadelphia. At some point, you got to look at yourself in a mirror and say, hey, how, what, how is your image throughout the rest of the sport? Because Ime Adoka, who was a pretty good coach, was a very good assistant, did very well with Boston before he got himself in trouble, takes over to Houston Rockets, and all of a sudden the thought of James Harden returning to Houston doesn't look so good. I think a lot of it has to do with the perception throughout the sport. And there's a reason that Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, has had a hard time coming up with a James Harden type of deal. Because that team is wondering, hey, how much longer is it going to be before James Harden becomes a malcontent for our club? And I think that's something that if you look through throughout the world of sports, it usually doesn't work out well for the player. You know, Le'Veon Bell held out for the Pittsburgh Steelers, the only team that he played for, by the way. So what, this is not a situation where you're talking about somebody that um, is labeled as a malcontent in most in, in, in for multiple teams. Here's a guy that it, it was in a situation where he's kind of challenging the lack of respect for NFL running backs trying to make him play on the franchise tag when they could sign him to a long-term extension. Obviously understanding that most of the yards that they've gained already are causing some sort of depreciation. Jonathan Taylor with the Indianapolis Colts right now. You know, is he injured? Is he holding out? You know, whatever. He's on a pup list. He's not playing right now. But uh, there's certainly a reason. He is unhappy because they're unable to reach an agreement on an extension. Josh Jacobs, Saquon Barkley, you know, other running backs in the NFL are running through the same situation. And, you know, maybe the shoe is kind of on the other foot. Maybe the leverage is in the team's hands. And the players who have held so much power over the world of sports for the last 30, maybe 40 years are in a position where they're starting to lose that type of leverage which I think is a secondary point off of basically what I'm talking about. But you know, you look at a James Harden, you look at a Jonathan Taylor, what type of leverage do they have right now as opposed to just going out there and playing 
the respective sport that they happen to play professionally. Harden for the 76ers, Taylor for the Indianapolis Colts. I think it's something worth thinking about. Now, on this day in sports history, saving sports history, here on the Passball Show, which is something we always try to do, 1892, I'm going back that far, yes, there was a, a heavyweight championship bout, and James J. Corbin knocks out John L. Sullivan in the 20th round. Sullivan, at the point, was a 4-1 to favorite, was an undefeated heavyweight champion, and Corbett wins by knockout in the 21st round. Sullivan's only loss and the last fight that John L. Sullivan has. Now you think about the greatest heavyweight champions in the history of boxing. Some people talk about Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson. And then there's others that get brought up. Sonny Liston, Floyd Patterson, Joe Frazier. Vander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, who held the heavyweight championship for a long time. To me, the it starts and ends with John L. Sullivan. Because I think this is somebody that dominated the sport at a time where it never had anybody dominate the sport leg. And it kind of brings me to this other conversation that I always wanted to have about the greatest in an individual sport and how you define it. How, would, how one would define it may be different in a way that I'd define it. But I think of the four major sports, baseball, football, basketball, or hockey, and I can think of one individual that completely transcended the sport by dominating it in a way that had never been done before. And the way I'm talking about John L. Sullivan dominating professional boxing, I'm going to talk about the way Wayne Gretzky dominated the sport of professional hockey, a sport that had existed many, many years before Wayne Gretzky took the ice for the Edmonton Oilers for the first time. He scored goals and led an offensive mentality that had never existed in the sport before. There was no player that dominated professional hockey like Wayne Gretzky did. Now, hockey might be the easiest sport to do that and say there's one player that completely transcended the sport. I think Babe Ruth did the same thing for Major League Baseball. A good pitcher, maybe not a Hall of Fame pitcher, but became the greatest offensive player and power hitter that the game had ever seen. Now you could say, hey, there's some players that have played since that may have been able to do it a little better, but nobody was the man among boys like Babe Ruth was in Major League Baseball. And then I switched to the sport of professional basketball, and you could talk about the GOAT, and whether it's LeBron James, Michael Jordan, whoever you want to bring up, I think that's a different type of discussion. But there was one time in basketball where there was a player that dominated the court more than anybody else in the history of professional basketball. And that's Will Chamberlain. You may not believe that Will Chamberlain was the greatest basketball player to ever play, but you look at Will Chamberlain, and there is no doubt that he was so much superior and better than anybody that was on the court. You could say, all right, well, there was a, a, a lack of competition. There wasn't as many talented and dominant players like they are, let's say, in the game today or in the 80s or the 90s. I agree with all that. There was no player that had such a distinct advantage over the rest of the players on the court like Will Chamberlain did in basketball. And when it comes to football, look at Jim Brown. Look at Jim Brown for the years that he played. 
and he was smart enough to retire at the age of 30, but he dominated the sport. There was nobody that could stop him, and there was nobody who had done what Jim Brown did until Jim Brown did what Jim Brown did. So I hope I make my point on that one. 1941, Bobby Riggs wins the U.S. Open for the second time in three years. 1974, which was 33 years later, and I bring this up because I think it's very important as we bring back things that happened in sports history on today, September, uh, September 7th, 2023. 33 years later, Billie Jean King wins her fourth and final U.S. Open championship. And you know that Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King are united for this reason. They end up playing the... Uh, their their famous Battle of the Sexes match where Billie Jean King won in three sets. An older Bobby Riggs, 55-year-old, and a 29-year-old Billie Jean King at the time. And this was kind of a, a little bit of a, a, a victory for, you know, sex rights. You know, trying to talk about things being equal between men and women. But, you know, it's amazing that Bobby Riggs wins the U.S. National Championship in 1941, and 33 years later, Billie Jean King, who, when Bobby Riggs won in 1941, wasn't even alive. Just, I, to me, that baffles me. I think that, that's, that's amazing. Now, in 1980, the Oakland Athletics set a major league record on this day with their 78th complete game of the season. They would end up having 94 complete games thrown that year. Billy Martin just basically running his pitchers out saying you're starting and finishing the same game. Rick Langford had 28 complete games. Mike Norris had 24. Matt Keogh had 20. Steve McCaddy had 11. Brian Kingman had 10. And Bob Lacey in his only start of the season had one. Now, it was a system that didn't work over a certain amount of time. The pitchers blew their arms out. None of their careers were the same after that. But the A's for a short period of time, 1980-1981, they were kind of up on the rise, and a lot of that had to do with Billy Martin. 1992, I think one of the better commissioners in Major League Baseball history, Faye Vincent announced his resignation, and this was kind of the start of the bullshit that you see the way Major League Baseball is run now. Bud Selig, really that uh, you know that that bitcher and complainer on the side that's always talking shit about somebody, that's Bud Selig. He kind of uh, you know weirds his way into the position as commissioner, and you you start to look at a system between Bud Selig and Rob Manfred, two of the worst commissioners you've had in the history of the sport. You're looking at a steroids era that was poorly regulated. Um, a cast of blame that never would have been thrown out there if it wasn't for Jose Canseco writing a book. If it wasn't for Congress getting involved, baseball wouldn't have taken stronger stances to uh, reduce the amount of performance-enhancing drugs in a sport. And then they turned the back on all the players that had brought the sport back from the strike that was caused by Bud Selig and the Major League Baseball owners. So, you know, you're talking about one of the better commissioners who was pushed out for political reasons, probably because you know the owners thought that he might have been a threat to their attempts to do what they wanted to do. And by the way, player salaries have continued to go up. So if Faye Vincent had remained the commissioner, salaries would have still gone up at the same rate. 
owners at the time were like, man, we got to stop this. We got to get a salary cap. That never happened. That led to the player strike, which almost destroyed the very sport that they all supported. And if it wasn't for the home run chase of 1998 between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, baseball is never brought back. There's a lot of fans that still to this day probably never go see a baseball game. In fact, that's the reason of the rise of the national pastime becoming the National Football League as opposed to Major League Baseball. And that was all because of Bud Selig. Bud Selig and his underground politics to get Faye Vincent removed as commissioner and then to push for what became the player's strike, which almost destroyed the sport. 1996, Steffi Graf wins the U.S. Open over Monica Seles. That's her last singles title. 2014 on this day, Serena Williams wins her third straight U.S. Open. And to me, Serena Williams, most dominant women's tennis player in the history of the sport. You heard me bring up some other most dominant players in an individual sport. Serena Williams deserves the, uh, the crown, per se, when it comes to women's tennis. So born on this day, 1908. The great Paul Brown, who I believe outside of Bill Belichick was the greatest football coach in the history of the sport, seven-time champion all four years of the All-American Football Conference and three-time NFL champion with the Cleveland Browns. You know, maybe takes a little knock because he never got the Cincinnati Bengals anywhere. Um, is known kind of as a dick. You know, he didn't treat Bill Walsh so well, but... Paul Brown, one of the most dominant coaches in the history of sports, was born on this day in 1908. Bill Giles, former National League president, um, front office executive with the Philadelphia Phillies, was born on this day in 1934. And 1996, Donovan Mitchell, Cavaliers guard, one of the great players in the NBA, and I think um, the, the elite superstar to hopefully uh, help the Cleveland Cavaliers become serious contenders year in and year out was born on this day in 1996. 1964, Walter Brown. He was the founder of the Boston Celtics, also owned the Boston Bruins. Died on this day in 1964. Ken Boyer, former Major League third baseman with the St. Louis Cardinals, passed away on this day in 1982. Joe Cronin, many-time World Series champion, American League president, was a great infielder for many, many years, died on this day in 1984. 2008, we lost College Football Hall of Fame coach Don Haskins. And on 20, 2017 on this day, former Major League infielder, manager, and executive Gene Stick Michael passed away. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two A's, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you're interested in hearing me flap my yap mouth, you want to comment on any of the shit that I've been saying, you could talk about Anything, anything that you want to bring up, just throw a comment my way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna respond. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, obviously videos on YouTube. We'll be back with you soon. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run 
or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.